This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. My name is Kevin Avertel, and I'm the coordinator for Global and Diversity Education, and I want to thank all of you for being here today uh, for today's topic on global elections. Uh, I'd really like to thank Troy Swanson and his staff for helping uh, organize this event and uh, putting together all the multimedia for the use of today's event as part of One Book, One College event for the semester. This event I thought of last year in hopes that um, there would be some excitement centering around the um, 2012 U.S. election. Um, this uh, election is obviously very pivotal for the United States, but I thought it would be a great opportunity to take any potential election incite- excitement and uh, use it to explore some of the dozens of elections that are going on throughout the world this year. So what I'd like to do, uh, first of all, I want to start by letting you know that um, I'm going to try to cover a handful of countries today. Um, this was uh, also a class project that uh, I had in my comparative government class where many of my students who are here today um, examined individual countries on their own for a research project. And one of those students, Brian Tompkins, is going to present on South Korea at the end. Um, But I wanted to let you know at the beginning that I have resources available uh, on Blackboard, and I briefly wanted to show each of you how to access those resources. So if you would like more information than I'm possibly able to give today uh, in the brief uh, presentation that we have, uh, that you can look into more detail into these countries on your own. So most of you are probably very familiar with Blackboard, but I just wanted to show you real quickly in case you're not, how you might be able to access the Global and Diversity Education Blackboard site. So once you lo- once you log in, there's an area for resource sites. And when you scroll down, there are community. Uh, there's two links under organization sites. One of them is Global and Diversity Education. And you self-enroll into the class. Click Submit. Scroll down to OK. And then you are in the Global and Diversity Education website. And at this point, there's a tab called Events on the left-hand side. And then for the fall 2012 semester, there's a folder. And then today's event, Global Elections. And I wanted to bring you to this site because, again, there's, there's quite a few resources. And um, I wanted to start off by saying there's about 60 elections throughout the world. About one-third of the countries in the entire world are having an election this year, either presidential or parliamentary. I wanted to start by showing some of the countries that are having these. uh, And this first link will be presidential elections. And there's 29 countries having presidential elections this year. 
in this site has it organized by date. This is the election guide site. <laughs> Clearly, as one person, I don't have infinite knowledge on each and every one of these countries and all the unique um, electoral rules and issues that are going on in each one of these countries. But uh, with that being said, I will select a, a handful of these countries that are having presidential elections in a few countries that are having parliamentary elections. And please, if at any point you guys have questions or comments, please just raise your hand and we can make this um, flexible and go in any direction that, uh, that you desire. So the second link is about uh, parliamentary elections in 2012. And uh, again, it's uh, organized by country and then the date that they have their uh, parliamentary elections. And you can see there's actually more parliamentary elections uh, throughout the world this year than presidential elections. Okay. So what I thought I'd do at this point is try to take five minutes without turning this into a comparative government class, I thought it would be important to at least give a little bit of a background of some of the differences between political systems and electoral rules. Um, first of all, as you probably know, just having an election doesn't make your country a democracy. As a matter of fact, we're going to highlight a few countries today, uh, in particular Russia and Belarus, who happen to have elections this year, but um, for various standards, we typically use the Freedom House as one measure of an, uh, a democracy. And there's really two ways of quantifying this. One is whether the country qualifies as an electoral democracy. And one might look at that as saying free and fair elections, elections that are competitive between multiple parties, multiple candidates, that um, provides access to uh, nearly universal access to all citizens and um, allows uh, nearly anybody to run for office. And um, the second part is another way of looking at democracies is whether you're a liberal democracy, and, and that is whether civil liberties are protected. And um, we'll highlight a couple of examples that, that uh, have violated that uh, in some countries throughout the world, uh, in particular Russia, uh, as some of you, some of you may have heard, um, some band members in Russia uh, that go by the name of Pussy Riot happen to be uh, imprisoned for anywhere up for two to seven years because of um, a performance that they put on in a church in Russia. And just looking at today's uh, New York Times newspaper, I, I found that uh, one of the key opposition leaders in Russia happened to be um, arrested and potentially receiving life in prison. So, again, in many countries um, that have elections, there's still violations of uh, civil liberties or they lack that true electoral competition. Okay, uh, political systems. Parliamentary versus presidential systems. In the United States, the United States has a presidential system. But most, the United States happens to be rare in having a presidential system, especially a presidential system that has true checks and powers. I'm sorry, 
separation of powers and checks and balances. Most um, democratic systems throughout the world um, use a parliamentary system. And a parliamentary system, that first bullet point um, down, uh, indicates that parliamentary systems are fused powers. What that does is uh, take the legislative and executive powers and essentially combines them to one office holder. Generally, that person's called a prime minister, some cases in the case of Germany, a chancellor, and there's unique names that are given. But it's very different than the U.S. political system in which the president has executive authority and then the legislative branch, which the United States separates out into a House of Representatives and a Senate, have their own uh, unique responsibilities and powers. So because of that, um, there creates problems for a presidential system in that, um, as an example in the United States right now, some people would, uh, there's different uh, ways of uh, people, there's different office holders who claim to have a mandate and be speaking for the American people right now. So, for example, in the House of Representatives, John Boehner, who happens to be the um, Republican uh, Speaker of the House, uh, was has received a majority in 2010 and um, claims that because the 2010 election was the most recent in the United States that uh, most of the American people support the Republican policy, whereas the Democrat um, president, Barack Obama, was elected by the entire United States back in 2008, claims to be speaking for a different constituency. And one of the problems that these checks and balances create is when you have one office holder who uh, executes the laws or signs um, bills that have been proposed by Congress into law, and you have a different branch, the legislative branch, that's proposing legislation, it can create gridlock. And that's really what we have in the United States. Um, in the last calendar year, and, uh, there's only been 192 public laws that have been passed, and uh, many of those are simply renaming post office. So I put a bullet point down called accountability and, and limited versus activist states. Parliamentary systems tend to be much more activist, and the voters in those systems can hold their elected officials responsible. Uh, because when there's an election in that country, the uh, candidates or parties generally um, put their platform for the people to um, be able to decide on, and when they're elected, they can quickly and decisively um, act on legislation that's going to comprehensively address big issues. Where in the United States, it's much more fragmented. We have 435 House of Representatives, 100 Senators, and of course a President. And each one of those elected officials has a different constituency. So, again, I, I don't want to go into too much detail. I hope I didn't make that too confusing. But these are very different political systems. And the, another part of that is in the United States, we've always known exactly when our elections are going to be, the, the first uh, Tuesday after the first Monday of November. In many of these parliamentary systems, it's uh, flexible elections and they can be called um, at random moment's notice. And we'll see in the case of Greece, they literally had two elections over the course of a month this summer um, because their uh, majority coalition had fell apart. 
um, an example in Israel, they were scheduled to have elections next uh, fall, but they're deciding, um, it looks like now, that they're going to have them in early January of 2013. So parliamentary systems can change the date of their election. And when a coalition falls apart, um, they can call what, they, what we refer to as snap elections and perhaps a, a few months out host an election. I'll get to this maybe in a little bit more detail, but then there's also coalitions. In many parliamentary systems, there's numerous political parties that uh, have to come together to form a majority in their parliamentary system. So oftentimes, more than one political party has to unite to be able to form a majority in their legislative branch. One of the very significant differences that I think is important to bring up before we look at individual countries is the electoral rules. Now, I'm going to just simplify this by saying that there's two general differences with electoral rules, but in reality there's many uh, different um, specific types of differences within these um, two categories. And I've tried to uh, generalize them by saying on the one hand you have a multi-member proportional system, and on the other hand you have a single-member district plurality. Uh, it, some people refer to this as winner-take-all or first-past-the-post winner-take-all. This is the type of system that the United States uses. And uh, the United Kingdom uses this as well and some of the former colonies of the United Kingdom. But it's very rare. Uh, most systems throughout the world use the multi-member proportional uh, system. So I'd like to give a, just a, 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 a general example, a made-up example, just to try to distinguish the two differences between these. But in the United States, you elect for one, uh, for a House of Representative, that House of Representative uh, represents one specific district, one specific constituency. Um, the president has a much broader constituency, but again, uh, one specific constituency. And only one person can win. A multi-member uh, proportional system can say, well, if we have a legislative branch with 100 seats, um, instead of breaking these down by individual congressional districts, we can just say that um, based on the election, uh, we're going to have, the t uh, based on the uh, election turnout, we can divide those seats based on the vote, not by specific districts. So here's this hypothetical example with 100 seats. So the first column, 100 seat legislature, I just broke these down by generic uh, party uh, names that are, off, that are used in the United States. Um, but you can use your imagination and, and these parties can be called uh, with obviously having different names. The second column is percent of the vote. And again, this is just a hypothetical scenario to really um, exemplify this. The third column is the system that the United States and the United Kingdom uses, which is a single-member district plurality. So if you happen to have 100 seats and one party were to win 51% of the vote, it's a winner-take-all system. There's no points for second place. So all, f all 100 of those seats would go to the majority party. In a proportional multi-member district system, it's just as it might sound, where it's broken down based on the proportion of the vote you received. So if 
uh, party were to receive 51% of the vote, they would receive 51 seats in their legislative branch. And I've listed the uh, other three parties, Democrat, Green, and Libertarian, based on their percentage of the vote. Can you think of any benefits or drawbacks uh, to either of these systems? What might be good or bad about um, a single-member uh, winner-take-all district or, or system versus a multi-member proportional system like most European countries uh, such as Greece and the Netherlands use? So any benefits or drawbacks to using one of these systems? Yeah, Brian? Yeah. The response uh, that was given was that it's quite possible that all the views of the citizens aren't really being representative in the, in the government. So in this case, a party wins 51% of the vote in the single-member district, um, which is a majority, but the other parties uh, receive no representation in government. So it's likely going to, because of the rules of this system, it's likely going to lead to a two-party system. And in fact, that's what the United States has with two major political parties competing at the national level. Yes, third parties exist, but realistically, they're not very successful. You contrast that with many European and uh, uh, even African democracies, and there's numerous political parties. In the case of Israel or Greece, there could be potentially 10 political parties that are represented in their legislative branch. So, uh, again, I can go into more detail if there's questions. And maybe now would be a good point to, to pause 20 minutes into this presentation. I expected this to be five minutes. So let's I, I see if there's any questions or comments that you have. Emma. So the question is, would there be drawbacks for more than a two-party political system? Yes. What might those drawbacks be? Jeremy. Yes. So the comment about one of the drawbacks of having a system that is likely to have, uh, encourage multiple political parties and represent multiple political parties is you can have political parties that represent an extreme group of voters, um, maybe on the far right or on the far left, and they're going to have a voice in the legislature. And we've actually seen a few examples in Greece and the Netherlands where very far-right, anti-immigrant groups um, have received representation. Uh, in the uh, Greece part, Mary, would you like to make a comment on that?
excellent response about one of the uh, groups in, in Greece of some of the extremists, and, and uh, they actually gained 18 seats in the June parliamentary elections in Greece. Um, and, and one other comment. In Netherlands, when you have, they had a coalition, and uh, we talked a little bit about coalitions earlier, but one of the far-right uh, groups in Netherlands withdrew their support of the majority coalition, and because of that, there was no longer a majority. The seats that they held in the parliament, um, by pulling back away from the majority, there was no longer a majority, and so new elections had to be held in Netherlands. This can make your political system um, very unpredictable and sometimes unstable. And I think Greece is a classic example of that. They've, they've literally had multiple elections in a few-month period. So... Uh, good comment about some of the drawbacks. And, again, we could go into more detail on that. But I would like to highlight a few different countries uh, to focus on some of their elections and some of the unique situations that, uh, and issues that were important in those elections. Um, one other point before I do that, uh, the stage of presidential elections when I get to France and Senegal and Egypt, you'll see that there's two dates listed. And in the case of France, they were separated by just about a week. In the case of Egypt, it was a little bit longer than that. But it opens it up. Of course, in the United States, there's really one stage. Now, technically, you can consider there are two stages with the primary or nomination phase of a campaign. But realistically, we just have this November 6th presidential election uh, with primarily two major candidates. But as you'll see in the case of France uh, and in Egypt, there was multiple candidates competing in that first stage. And then the top two, generally speaking, um, the top two vote getters uh, go on to the second stage, which then can, uh, again, provide an opportunity for third-party candidates um, to be much more successful um, and have a, a greater chance of success in the, um, in the election. Generally speaking, the United States has a very, very long campaign season. It's been over a year uh, with the uh, nomination and general election stage. This is very atypical. Many uh, countries limit their campaign season to a month, sometimes a little bit more than that. Um, but again, just to kind of distinguish some of the differences. And then I wanted to highlight and a couple of the countries you're going to look at today. Russia and Venezuela, in large part due to their presidents, they changed their constitution to allow their um, current sitting presidents um, an opportunity to uh, extend their uh, time in office. So, for example, for Venezuela, the old uh, rule in their constitution was that a, a president could serve two four-year terms. Um, under the direction of uh, Hugo Chavez, they suggested changing this to a six-year term. So even though Hugo Chavez has already served uh, his, his two four-year terms, he's just re-elected uh, about a week ago to a new uh, six-year term. Um, allowing more time in office for Hugo Chavez. In very similar situation, uh, Vladimir Putin, uh, who served as president from 2000 to 2008, and then essentially hand-selected uh, the next president, uh, uh, Medvedev, 
then uh, there was a change in Russia to allow a new six-year term of office. So Putin was just elected to a six-year term of office this past March, and then he has an option of running again for another six years. So this is something to keep an eye on, and many would regard as not very democratic. Uh, interesting situation in Senegal that we'll look at. They also changed their constitution to allow their two-term uh, president to, to run again, but he actually lost, um, and uh, that's somewhat unique for sitting presidents who have changed the constitution to allow for a third term. And then lastly, there's a couple of countries that are hosting elections this year, South Korea, Mexico, that had one that limit their president to one single term of office, which is also unique. Um, compared to the United States, two terms of uh, four years, um, Mexico and South Korea limit it to a single, um, in their case of uh, Mexico, six years term of office. Okay, so what I, I've done is in the Blackboard uh, folder, organize the uh, countries with their own respective folder, and inside these folders, are various links that you might find useful. And I thought I'd start with Russia. I think this was a very pivotal election in the world for many reasons. Uh, we mentioned the term limits. But it also, if you look at the situation that's going on in Syria right now, many people would argue that because Putin being reelected, uh, Putin and Russia have essentially emboldened Syria uh, by because of their unique situation in the Middle East. Uh, perhaps if Putin wasn't reelected, um, the UN Security Council would have stricter resolutions uh, and, and take more action on the situation in Syria. So I'm going to play a part of this video clip. This is from uh, PBS, and it's from March uh, 5, 2012. Mixed reviews at home and abroad. Margaret, Margaret Warner has been covering the story for us from Moscow. Vladimir Putin strode into his campaign headquarters after midnight, buoyed by winning a third term as president and six more years as Russia's preeminent leader. Putin took a victory lap by satellite with managers and workers at a Euro Mountains metals factory. Amid thanks for their support, he took shots at the protest movement that broke out after December's disputed parliamentary elections. You put in your place those who dare to insult the working people. You showed what a real Russian working man is. You showed that you are high above any of those good-for-nothing chatterboxes. And it became the biggest present for me. That present was celebrated tonight at a jubilant pro-Putin concert outside the Kremlin gates. While a half mile away, past a riot-ready contingent of police and military, the opposition gathered at Pushkin Square to denounce Putin's election. Putin's victory is unfair. He could have won in a fair fashion, but he preferred to use fraud. That's why we do not accept his victory. Election authorities conceded today there may have been some irregularities. Independent and opposition party monitors charged there were 3,000 or more. They sent tens of thousands of observers to the polls, armed with smartphone apps and wary eyes. Social media spread videos showing buses allegedly ferrying voters to cast ballots in multiple locations. And cited by activist blogger Alexei Navalny. 
у нас уже сейчас есть огромное количество. We already have a lot of physical evidence and video recording of the falsifications. But given the 64% landslide, the larger debate today was over what voters were really saying and what Putin would hear. In a village near Moscow yesterday, a retired teacher lauded Putin for providing stability and security. I voted for Putin. I'd like him to be even more of a strongman without any liberal compromises. But art historian Natalia Simonova voted none of the above. We want uh, to express our feeling that we are something and the government should hear our voice. In Moscow, this telecom sales manager chose billionaire Mikhail Prokhorov, who got only 7%, but mostly to send a zinger to Putin. I voted for Prokhorov in order to let the, uh, the, the authorities know that there are different opinions. Do you think he's going to listen to that message? I think he's a clever man. That's my own opinion, personal. So I think that if he uh, does his homework, he does his, you know, he would, he would spend a little more time on real thinking about what people need, he can do that. I, I, I believe in him. I think Putin is a hard-headed realist, actually. I think the signals he got in the last two months, uh, they, they matter and they have impressed him. Alexei Pushkov, newly elected chairman of Parliament's International Affairs Committee, believes Putin will loosen his tight-fisted control because people who voted for and against him have something in common. They want a more democratic system. They want that the authorities listen more to the population. To, to the citizens of the country. Uh, in an effort to be able to cover additional countries, I wanted to cut that off. Um, but were there any questions or comments about Russia? Where you go on? I noticed one of the voters, uh, the woman, uh, elderly woman, retired teacher, indicated that she wanted more of a strong man to be leading Russia. Can you think of any benefits that having a, a strong man or a strong authoritative type uh, leader might provide for that political system? Yeah. Exactly. The comment was more decisive. You can quickly and comprehensively address significant issues without having that opposition and checks and balances from other groups. And again, just to contrast that with the United States, very significant issues that are not being addressed, again, in large part because of our political system has been designed to, to be very limited uh, with the checks and balances and multiple political authorities that can contest for power. All right, the second example I wanted to uh, cover today was Senegal. And again, I mentioned earlier that um, this was a situation where the incumbent president um, helped change the, the term of office to three. Many people were concerned that this would be a really bad movement um, for the continent of Africa. Many people regard Senegal as the most, one of the most democratic countries uh, in the continent of Africa. And um, so the fact that um, the incumbent president lost, many people saw as a very positive sign uh, for democracy and the movement of democracy uh, in the region. After a chaotic and at times violent campaign, jubilation. These are the supporters of the man who will now leave Senegal, Macky Sall. I'm very happy, very happy. Macky is young, he's very polite, courteous and really he deserves this. Everybody was hoping he'd win. 
And this is the man he beat, his former political mentor, Abdullahi Wad, who changed the constitution to try to secure a third term in office. His attempt to cling to power sparked themes like this, upsetting the tranquility in West Africa's most stable democracy. It was at times a bitter campaign. This man, the musician Yusu Ndor, wanted to run, but was disqualified by five constitutional judges. So who is Maki Sal? He was born to a modest family in the western city of Fatik. His father a civil servant, his mother a nut seller. He was partly educated in France and held a number of ministerial posts under his predecessor, including that of Prime Minister. Now he has many tasks on his hands, among them the food crisis gripping the Sahel region. But in the capital Dhaka, where once there was violence, people are now seeing in a new era. Surely a sense of optimism Senegal's new leader will want to preserve. Tom Esselmont, BBC News. Right, the, the next example I wanted to cover was a very important election in Europe uh, this past spring in France. And earlier I had mentioned um, two-stage uh, presidential election contest. This is a source uh, called Election World. It's actually run through Wikipedia. And uh, I just wanted to use this as a demonstration to show that the to show the significance of a, a two-stage process for for president that France uses. So. In this far left column, you can see the candidates and their names. Well, hopefully you can understand this is probably 12-point font, depending upon where you're sitting. Um, but they're listed in order of the percent of vote that they received. And in the first round, you can see uh, that the third candidate down, uh, Marine Le Pen, and this is another one of those. She represents a national front, which is another one of those far-right, kind of nationalist, anti-immigrant uh, political parties and received almost a fifth of the vote in France in the first stage. Now, French electoral rules, if you do not receive uh, a quarter of the votes from the uh, registered citizens, um, you're removed from the second stage. And so in the second stage, there's only two candidates in a very, very close election between the incumbent uh, conservative, Sarkozy, and um, the winner, Socialist Party, Holland. And uh, many people argued that this is a very pivotal election in Europe um, for uh, the situation with uh, the European, uh, the Euro crisis and some of the austerity measures that are going on throughout the continent. And um, at, at least initially when Holland was elected, uh, many of the uh, uh, world financial markets kind of went went down because many people thought um, the socialist president um, who's argued and in, 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 uh, for 75 percent uh, or taxes to be um, at 75 percent for those who make uh, one one million euros so about one and a quarter million dollars in the United States um, to be taxed at 75 percent that that he would have an, a negative impact on the economy this uh, brief video clip that I wanted to play is from uh, the BBC News um, talking about some of the key elements of the French elections. The 
campaigners dominated national media headlines for the last few weeks in France. All broadcasters have to give each candidate equal airtime and for the last two weeks of the campaign they even have to allocate them the same amount of time on the same kind of programs at the same time of day. No such rules apply to newspapers and some of their coverage has actually been quite partisan. For example, when President Sarkozy started to emphasize the issue of immigration, the centre-right Le Figaro praised him on its front page for going back to basics, whereas the centre-left Le Monde accused him of right-wing radicalization. Social media have come into their own in this campaign. French tweets with the hashtags Sarkozy or all Unfortunately, that video got cut off, uh, but I thought that was interesting about equal airtime on television for the two candidates. Um, obviously, not something that you would see in the United States. Uh, the next country I selected, uh, very pivotal elections over the summer, uh, early summer in Egypt. And here's a brief video clip from BBC News uh, on that uh, presidential election. Mohamed Mursi was never meant to run this race. He stepped in when the Muslim Brotherhood's first choice was disqualified. The softly spoken 60-year-old engineer was always regarded as the least charismatic of all the candidates. But the Muslim Brotherhood put its formidable resources behind him. Educated in the United States, he's Egypt's first president without a military background. He's promised to bring stability, justice and prosperity through what he calls the Renaissance Project and he's pledged to represent all political forces, but says his policies will have a moderate Islamic reference. This may inspire his supporters, but many, especially members of the Coptic Christian community, fear Egypt will move towards being an Islamic state, destroying its secular identity. The former MP has played a key role in the Muslim Brotherhood's Guidance Bureau. After Hosni Mubarak was toppled, he became head of the Freedom and Justice Party, the movement's political wing. He'll need to prove his loyalty is to the Egyptian people. The uh, videos have a short attention span. They would like to shut off in about a minute. Um, but this was a pretty interesting election. Uh, many people argued it, it kind of pit the uh, Muslim Brotherhood and, and uh, the Islamist Party against the military. And it's important to keep in mind that this is still a work in progress. Uh, Egypt's constitution is still evolving, uh, and uh, it's still not exactly clear where true authority resides. Um, the military and the president have kind of contested one another for um, significant decision-making in Egypt, um, but obviously a monumental um, election in the eve of the Arab Spring and uh, removal of uh, Hosni Mubarak. I'd like to shift uh, towards uh, Latin America, and this was a significant election in Venezuela. Uh, I'm gonna, hopefully this video will play a little bit longer than a minute. Um, so I'll start with the video, and this video was uh, actually found by a student of mine, uh, Samantha Garcia, and I thought it was a great video to uh, kind of highlight some of the significant issues going on in the Venezuelan election. David and Goliath. Known as 7-0 for the 7th of October, when Venezuelans head to the polls, 
The election marks a watershed moment for the world's second largest oil producing nation and a critical supplier of crude oil to the U.S., its number one customer. Towering above the race is incumbent President Hugo Chavez. Well, the uh, network is not cooperating as much as I'd like it to. Um, but um, a significant election for various reasons. Uh, many people would argue it uh, essentially validates uh, the socialist uh, president, Hugo Chavez, and many of his populist movements that he's engaged in. Um, some people have called into question how free and fair this election was uh, in, in large part because of some of the patronage that Hugo Chavez used a lot of government spending. Um, you can see a, a few of these uh, links that I have in the folder for Venezuela. Uh, this one titled Extreme Home Makeover Chavez Edition. Essentially, a uh, government program uh, that uh, was giving very generous government subsidies for, for housing in a way to try to increase his uh, vote come election time. Um, there's also a link in here about why Chavez was reelected in this uh, author's making a claim that um, many of the socialist type or leftist populist uh, leaders in Latin America have been successful because they've uh, addressed the needs of the poor within their countries. And although the uh, United States and some Western European countries may not uh, find these governments very appealing, um, their citizens do. Um, and another point to make about the Venezuelan election is uh, the opposition was at least much more organized in this election. There was an increase of the vote for the opposition party um, by one and a half million votes compared to the last election. And clearly Hugo Chavez won. He won with 55% of the vote compared to 44% for, uh, for the opposition candidate. But um, it's at least a, a movement in the right direction for more competition in Venezuela. Um, some people are concerned about what's going to happen next. Hugo Chavez uh, has cancer. Uh, it's not quite clear the extent to that of the cancer and what might happen if he were to die in office. If he dies in office in the first four years, there would have to be a new election. It's not quite clear who his uh, successor might be. Uh, within his political party. So there's some questions about the future of uh, Venezuela. One of the uh, significant, I'm just going to call it a change of power because it's not quite an election in the true sense, um, but it occurs in China um, in about a week after the United States election. And um, this is a once in a decade transfer of power in China. And obviously, China, the second largest economy in the world, uh, a very significant player in the global affairs. And um, obviously, the, the new leader, the decisions that uh, they make are going to have very significant influence around the world. And so I'd like to hopefully play this video. And this is from PBS News, NewsHour talking about um, the transition to a new government. For that, we turn to David Shambaugh, director of the China Policy Program and professor of political science and international affairs at George Washington University. And Professor Shambaugh, welcome back to the program. So expelling Bo Xilai 
lodging criminal charges. Put this in some context for us, first of all. How big a step is this? Well, Margaret, it's been a sort of thundercloud hanging over the Chinese political system in the country for the last six months. Uh, the whole system has been in suspended animation waiting for this last shoe to drop. As your package just indicated, the conviction of his wife and then his former police chief were the antecedents mm -hmm. to today's announcement. Um, it is a big, uh, it's a major scandal. It's a, probably the largest scandal since um, a man named Zhao Ziyang was removed from office on the eve of the Tiananmen crisis in 1989. Um, and as your package has indicated, uh, Bo was a contender for the highest body, the Standing Committee of the Politburo. But he obviously stepped on a lot of toes and um, made a lot of enemies. Well, why did it take, I mean, as you said, this has been grinding on for months. Why did it take so long? What was the infighting really about? Well, um, we don't entirely know. The Chinese political system is known for its opacity, yeah. not its transparency. <laughs> but um, clearly, uh, in addition to the complicity in the murder of the British uh, national Haywood, uh, his style when he was the leader of Chongqing uh, irritated the central leaders. He was not a consensual party man. He was uh, kind of more of an American-style politician, out glad-handing a lot, mm -hmm. trying to uh, build a populist base amongst the poor and the, and the deprived in, in Chongqing um, and really openly campaigning for promotion um, as well as bugging apparently uh, his security services were said to bug the uh, president of the country Hu Jintao he, he just did a number of things um, and now we know that there were financial irregularities rather considerable and huge corruption and bribe taking did he represent any kind of significant ideological wing in the party in other words is there some sort of neo-maoist leftist cadre or was this just power politics no very definitely there is a neo-leftist maoist cadre they've been there really for 30 years throughout the reform period that they have not been happy with either the external opening to the world or many of the uh, grab what you can grab while you can grab it kind of policies domestically uh, they see china as having really gone down the wrong path um, of you mean embracing the markets even though embracing it's market control that's right um, and creating vast social inequities. Uh, China has now the world's highest, I think, Gini coefficient, which is a measure of social inequity. So this is a country of huge haves and have-nots. Um, and the leftists, if you will, who are actually a rather uh, vocal block within the party and in society, the netizens actually echo this as well, uh, have been yeah, chirping. The social media, the That's social right. media types. Who, there was one headline today that said, mm -hmm. microbloggers gloat. Right, right. <laughs> So, meanwhile, it was so serious what to do about him that it delayed setting the date for the party Congress. Mm -hmm. I mean, was... For the final 15 minutes or so, I thought we'd uh, try something different here. With the audience that we happen to have today, I have my uh, comparative government class and... Uh, we have a, a class of ESL students and international students. I thought it might be a good opportunity to have you pair up, and uh, the students in my American or comparative government class could 
have a, a quick kind of individual question and answer with one of the um, uh, students on this side of the room, and maybe they can, if they happen to be from a different country, they can tell you a little bit about their own country. You can tell them maybe a little bit about the U.S. election, and uh, you guys can have a little bit of a conversation on an individual level. So if there's any questions or comments for me, I'll be up front. Um, and again, I want to thank all of you for attending today. I appreciate it and uh, look forward to hosting future events. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library.